Hey guys, Brian Jodas here for this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast, and this one's brought to you by my friends at Allbirds. Go to allbirds.com. They've got loads of great shoes, socks, apparel. It's excellent. I'm wearing a pair of men's Tree Dasher ones right now. They're my favorite, just casual, hanging around, working, got to throw a sneaker on and go kind of shoe. And if you go to their website right now, allbirds.com, those Tree Dashers are on sale and here's the best part. We're going to get you a free pair of socks. If you spend over 50 bucks at allbirds.com and you use the code pick up the socks at checkout, you throw a pair of socks in your cart, they're going to be free. Just like that. They're throwing some free socks at you. Go to allbirds.com, get whatever you need, spend over 50 bucks, use the code pick up the socks and save today some of the most comfortable shoes in the game. It's allbirds.com and use our promo code pick up the socks and get you a free pair of socks today on them. Thank you guys for the partnership. Guantanamo Bay, better known as Gitmo, it was home to some of the world's most dangerous and sought-after terrorists. And during part of his time in the Army, it was home for Montgomery Granger, as he served as the ranking Army Medical Department officer in a joint military operation like no other. On this episode of Pick Up the Six podcast, we talk about what it's like to take care of terrorists and murderers just months after 9-11, and how he kept his sanity and grace through it all. Hey guys, Brian Jodis back once again for another episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast, and Montgomery Granger joins me this morning, and man, I'm just grateful, grateful to do it. This is one of those, <laughs> one of those benefits of social media, right? We can make that connection in a platform where we can talk and share ideas and share content, and uh, we got linked up that way, and but just saw what you were talking about, specifically the book, and we're going to talk about that too. But first and foremost, man, just grateful to have you today. Well, I'm grateful to be here, Brian. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your interest uh, and your camaraderie very much. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. We were just talking offline. I'm like, man, we could we could go for a while, but we'll have a really good conversation today. Montgomery spent a lot of time serving in the military. He's an educator as well. I mean, his bona fide credentials. The book, though, is called Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay, a memoir of a citizen warrior. So we're going to talk a lot about that because in those moments, those immediate moments following that fateful Tuesday, and then the actions that happen after that in, in our pursuit as a nation, really as a world, but as a nation, the United States of America, to ensure that the attacks on 9-11 at the towers at the Pentagon in that field in Pennsylvania to ensure they wouldn't happen again. We had to go out and do some real work. And part of that was collecting up a bunch of bad guys. And in doing so, we had to take them somewhere. And that was Guantanamo Bay. You guys have heard it called that. You've heard it called Gitmo. And Montgomery was there in those early moments and had a pivotal role to play. So before we talk about that, mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and how'd you end up in the army and right. And then that path to, to that place is uh, pretty incredible. I would think. Sure. Thanks again for having me, Brian. I really appreciate this opportunity to share uh, these thoughts and feelings with your audience. Uh, born in Geneva, Illinois. Uh, grew up in Southern California, two and a half to 18. I fled uh, undergrad at University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Yeah, Roll Tide. Uh, I got a composite major there in health, physical education, recreation, and dance. I got my man, teacher. I got my man, Mark Forrester, right over my shoulder there, right? Uh, Air, For Air Force combat controller killed in combat. Uh, He's got an Alabama hat on in the cover of that book. Uh, roll so, tide. Roll tide, brother. <laughs> uh, 
so I moved to, uh, I went to grad school at uh, Teachers College, Columbia University, where I met my wife, uh, both educators, retired now, um, became an administrator after about seven and a half years of teaching and coaching, uh, athletic administrator, uh, director of health, phys ed, athletics, health services, etc. Um, I joined the Army uh, after I moved back to California after uh, my master's degree. I substitute taught in my home district for about a year, but the loans were coming due. I had to take out, mm. uh, borrow my financial future away, basically, to go to college. And Columbia was not cheap. Uh, so if you've ever seen the movie Stripes, uh, <laughs> our hero sitting at home feeling sorry for himself and a commercial comes on, be all you can be. Yeah. Well, for me, it was the same, but the commercial was loan repayment. Uh, I hadn't really thought about joining the military before then. But then I started thinking about it. I said, well, you know what? That might not be too bad. I wasn't into killing people so much. So I picked medic, combat mm. medic. Uh, I'd always uh, focused in on medics in Army movies and, and TV shows. So that seemed like something I could do. Uh, and then when I signed up, I found out that you're a soldier first. And my first gig was with the 40th Mech Infantry. And I'll never forget Mal, my first platoon sergeant, Vietnam vet. Um, combat uh, medic and he told me that he says you're 11 bravo till somebody gets hurt and they taught me every weapon mm, yeah and i carried a 16 and a 45 and later in iraq i carried my am 16 i did not carry a sidearm because if you're going to get into it i'm i'm sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm yeah, not if taking if you're going to get into it we're going to get into it yeah that's right what you got to do yep uh, so after about five years, combat medic, uh, my loans were paid off. I decided to make a career move and stay in uh, my unit at the time, 102nd uh, Medical Battalion, New York City, sent me to OCS. And the rest is history until 9-11. Yeah. Uh, so a few months, actually about 18 months before 9-11, I was transferred out of a 4220th U.S. Army Hospital unit on Long Island. Uh, to the 800th MP Brigade out of Oakdale, uh, Long Island, which was, I believe at the time, the only enemy prisoner of war military police brigade. Uh, you know, reserves and National Guard or combat support and combat service support, you don't really need unless there's a war. So we trained hard. Uh, a lot of these guys and gals uh, served in uh, the first Gulf War and dealt with tens of thousands of Iraqi soldiers putting their hands up. Mm. And that was crazy town. And all these folks were pretty much still in the unit. So you had uh, all these civilian law enforcement and an enemy prisoner of war military police brigade training hard every uh, month and two weeks in the summer to take care of bad guys. That's what we did. And my job as a part of a 12-person liaison detachment, we had uh, a JAG officer, a transportation officer, Loggy, uh, uh, was to make sure Geneva Conventions were followed in the operations. So we're sort of an oversight. And the lesson learned from the Gulf War was that the EPW camps were about 500 miles away from brigade headquarters. So we would be co-located with a... Uh, cluster, three battalion cluster of detainee operations 
and enforce the commander's intent in the camp. Um, so we're training hard, and then 9-11 hits. Uh, get called into the unit uh, as part of the emergency uh, uh, operations center. Uh, our job was to protect Fort Totten, New York. Our general, General Colt, uh, was in charge of that mission. Uh, I spent a week there, and General Colt uh, told us to pack our bags. He said, I don't know where, I don't know when, but it's going to be soon. Tell your families. We're going to get busy with it. Uh, then the invasion happened of uh, Af Afghanistan uh, by the U.S., and we were ready to go. So we, we got activated January 2002, uh, three days after my third son was born, uh, Theodore. And I think that was really the most difficult part of being deployed uh, is being away from your family and three young boys, my wife. And, uh, you know, it was an emotional train wreck. No man should have to leave his family. But that's what we do. So on top of, uh, you know, hating these guys who took me from my family, I had a duty to care for them and make sure that they were cared for. Now, the U.S. Army trains one way, the right way. We don't train to abuse people. And in fact, any slight abuse that happened to get more while I was there was very harshly dealt with. Uh, what am I talking about? A detention hospital? Yeah, because it feels in. like there was a time where they wanted to portray that that's what was only happening there. Yeah. It was far it. from the truth. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a, a guard might slap a detainee in the back of the head and wake him up in a, in a detention hospital. That guy was gone. He went home, uh, you know, probably lost rank. Uh, mm. Horrible things would happen to you if you did crap like that. Uh, we had, um, you know, briefings before the, the shift would go in, debriefs after, we were very cognizant of the emotional um, challenge of dealing with these guys. And actually, there was a clash between the Navy medical personnel and the Army MP personnel. MPs are trained. You don't talk to these guys unless you tell them what to do. There's no fraternization for obvious reasons. And yet they were in this detention hospital, Tent City Hospital, um, watching the Navy folk. Uh, do bedside manner things, small talk. Why? Because as a medical person, you want the patient to heal. You want them to relax. You want yeah. them to trust you. So it was a huge conflict uh, that never got reported, never talked about, uh, which is fine. But the bottom line for me, Brian, is that the, the portrayal of U.S. military personnel at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, is misaligned. Uh, these are some of the most disciplined, dedicated, hardworking, and uh, skillful uh, people I've ever worked with in my life. And I think it continues to this day. One of the misconceptions was that we were torturing mm -hmm. detainees when, in fact, uh, you know, and this is confirmed after reading Don Rumsfeld's Known and Unknown, his autobiography. He said, DOD personnel not even trained in EIT or waterboarding, civilian or uniform. We're not trained in that. It's not part of our DNA. Only the CIA are trained in those. I was going to say agency folks, maybe, right? But not 
Yeah, the secret squirrels, the shadow warriors, you know, the tip of the spear. They do all that stuff. I can't tell you where they go to work. Yeah. We don't do that. Right. We take care of them. Right. And that's all we ever did. We treat them with dignity and respect. Uh, And the book talks about, and uh, if I may interject. Please. I I narrate a film, a short documentary film based on my book. It's about 10 minutes long. It's a YouTube video. Yeah, we'll be sure to share that. We'll be sure to share that in the show notes. It's called Heroes of Gitmo, and it kind of focuses in on one guy. His name is, uh, we named him uh, Wild Bill because he displayed bizarre behavior, such as taking bites out of his flip-flops, hanging things from his genitals, Mm. uh, splashing gourds. That means, you know, taking bodily fluids. Yeah, peeing on them and stuff. And throwing them on the guards as they approach. So um, we found out eventually that this guy was uh, a off-his-meds schizophrenic and cold turkey heroin addict. Uh, he told us eventually that he had picked up a, an AK-47 in Kandahar to support his habit. So the Taliban had been, you know, feeding him medication and, and uh, heroin to fight. So when you're captured, you don't get that stuff anymore. So eventually he was uh, the first person repatriated. And the film talks about how I drove the Humvee to his freedom bird. Uh, we got about two hours to talk with him through an interpreter while we were hiding from the press before the bird came in. Uh, so that's how we got all this information about him. Uh, he went back and we were told uh, by the secret squirrels. Uh, my boss, the commandant of Camp X-Ray, uh, went to Friday parties called by the alphabet soup guys. He came back one night. He says, do you know that wild bill? I said, yeah. He says, well, as soon as he got off the plane, they put a bullet in his head. I say, you got to be kidding me. We spent all this time and effort and, you know, doing our jobs, keep this guy alive. And they shot him. Well, two weeks later, we see online at NBC.com. The guy's sitting on a bed, a hospital bed in Kandahar, uh, happy as a bird, talking about how well we treated him. And I think that was the last, the first and the last article ever published by mainstream media that showed the U.S. operation at Gitmo in a positive light. Yeah. But you know, I joined yeah, I joined an organization. I spent a lot of time in, working in television. My first job sort of once we left that TV world was at a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called Military Families United. And I got to spend a lot of time with Commander Kirk Lippold who commanded the USS Cole the day it was attacked in 2000. He was guest wow. number one on this podcast because you're going to kick off, pick up the six podcast. Who better than Commander Lippold, who watched sailors risk life and limb for their fellow sailor to pick up the six, right? As they're literally saving their ship from sinking and saving their shipmates' lives. And he was so hard on this reputation of Guantanamo Bay and and at the time this decree from the president that we're going to shut this place down and he would talk as you're talking about about the real work happening there and just the international security threat that it would be to close or to even disparage what was happening at a place like that because you guys got, and you guys know, I mean, this audience knows, but you got to remember, like we spent, and I feel very fortunate. We've talked to some guys like Tim Brown, who were air force CCT, you know, pre nine 11. So we spent a lot of time in the eighties, nineties, chasing a lot of bad guys around the world. 
and bringing a lot of bad guys to justice and grabbing them. And, you know, it's a lot of situations and those guys going into Panama in 89 and even in 93, right. Where we're sort of starting to much more in sort of middle East terrorism, but it's just, mm -hmm. it's so different that Tuesday changed everything and it, and it elevated the actors. Now Lippold would tell you, we should have woken up after October 2000 what happened at the USS Cole and paid more attention, neither here nor there, I suppose, but the world changed and, and the way in which we had to detain and, and, and just move forward. I mean, I, just, I would love your opinion because I'm on the outside of it looking in. Yeah, it was all, it was all messed up from the, from the start. So just to put things in perspective, tens of thousands of unlawful combatant Islamists who want to kill us were apprehended on the battlefield. Yeah. Only tens less of thousands. Eight, Huge tens numbers. of thousands. Right. Only less than 800 ever made it to Gitmo. It's a very small percentage in the grand scheme of things. Over 740 have been released. Wow. None of them beheaded, executed, blown up, hacked to death, dragged naked and lifeless through the streets, drowned or burned alive. All things our enemies have done to us mm. and to our allies. There is no moral comparison. That's right. Between Gitmo and how our enemy treat their That's captives. Right. Yet you will never hear that from the MSM. These guys get free Qurans, uh, white robes, halal, and holy Muslim holiday meals. You, should, you saw a picture. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed put a little weight on. I mean, he was looking. Yeah. Directions to Mecca. Uh, uh, World-class health care. Vision care. Eye care recreation, correspondence, library, TV, DVDs, sports, and more. Yeah. And how much of that would we get were we captured and kept alive long enough to be called a prisoner? Very rare. So, you know, the portrayal, uh, in, it's not that the press doesn't have this information. It's they want a virtue signal that we're the bad guys. Yep. Why is that? Why do we put up with that? It's yeah, insane. A problem. It is insane. Doesn't That's why I want to talk about. That's why I want to take some time and talk about it. Sure. I know our audience will lean in and greatly appreciate it. I know they'll share it. Maybe we just look as time goes. My thing too is like, as time goes, we can't forget what really happened. We can't not talk about reality because we need people to remember that we were thrust into incredible moments after this, these brazen attacks. Right. And you're right. There, there is no comparison in the way in which humility is, is bestowed upon people throughout it. Go ahead. So, you got another how, thought, because then I want to ask you yeah. about who's there, right? I mean, there's big names that are coming through this place, but please. Yeah. So when we got word we were going, we sent a representative to the Pentagon, and that was uh, Colonel Alan Ecke. Uh, he was the executive officer for the 800th MP Brigade, mm -hmm. and he would come back shaking his head. He says, these guys do not know what they're doing. They're asking us what we need, and we're saying, well, this is how it works doctrinally. Everybody knows the word doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, and they wouldn't do it. So what am I talking about? First of all, they wanted a location. We talked about uh, Diego Garcia. We talked about um, you know, Hawaii. We all voted for Hawaii, but they said no. Uh, but we kept coming back to Gitmo because of, uh, logistically, there it is. And we also took care of the Haitian and Cuban boat people in the early 90s. I didn't even think uh, about how you end up bringing everybody there and what goes into that. Sure. It's about an 18-hour flight from sure. Insulik. Uh, anyhow, uh, we got there, and there's a Marine 
Brigadier General in charge. Now, the only branch of service that deals with enemy prisoner of war operations is the Army. Mm -hmm. That's how we train. We mm -hmm. do that. That's what we do. Everybody else just captures them and gives them to gives us. Gives them to you guys. Right. So uh, it was a joint mission, which is fine. Navy had the medical part. Uh, they had a hospital there, and they brought a mobile hospital. Um, but the detention operations, they wanted every single guy treated as though they were a high-value, uh, you know, difficult detainee. So each detainee had their own cell. And it was dog kennels at, be at the beginning, a, a six by eight foot slab, chain link fence in block units outdoors. Uh, but it's Cuba. It, it, the, the climate was perfect for this. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as we got there, Brian, we started building Camp Delta. And did you know that Camp X-Ray was used for three months? Yet all the pictures you in, in you know, in all the articles I see, the worst of the worst, it looks it's terrible. It's always yeah. the on the knees in the yeah. jumpsuits, yeah. Uh, you know, sensory deprivation. Um, but that was only for anywhere from 10 to 45 minutes. A person was in there. That was a holding cell prior to in processing. Yet that is the image that is burned into Americans mm. uh, minds. Uh, but I've talked to people. I said, well, what do you think of that? But you did that to them all day. That was cruel. I said, no, 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 no. That's just when they got there. Yeah. But Even someone like me who's had, and listeners who, who have looked into it, have talked to people, right? Plenty of conversations with folks like you or the lipholds of the world. You still think your brain just is, because you saw it so much. It just was put You've out there. Conditioned. So You've yeah, been conditioned. You've been conditioned. In fact, yeah. the International Committee of the Red Cross Physicians I work with there, told me unsolicited, and they told me again in Iraq when I was doing the same thing in Iraq, nobody does detention operations better than the U.S. We actually take it seriously. Sure. We, we do it by the book. Uh, and we don't do it by the book. There's a, a big price to pay because that reflects on all of us. When the abuse happened at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, we all felt that. Mm. That was humiliating to all of us. And in fact, my unit was sent in after the scandal to try to clean things up. And I'm telling you, Brian, there's only one way to describe Abu Ghraib when I got there, and that is shithole. Uh, they had moved the detainees out of the hard site for visibility. Uh, the shower was a three-foot spigot on a slab of concrete. Uh it was just a really bad situation. I got kicked out of there after about a month because I kept complaining so much. Um, but you have to treat people like a human being if you expect them to behave like a human being. And in fact, I, I bumped into a, uh, one of Saddam Hussein's uh, generals while I was there. And he said that to me. Well, it's a great, it really is a good point. Obviously, you don't like what they did. You hate it. You hate it or, or what they're a part of. These guys no. might not have even sometimes they might not have had even done anything. Now, odds are by the time they get to you and you're talking about that weeding out process. Well, here's something. an interesting point. Right? Right. You, you got to treat them like a human yeah. if you want to get that info. Exactly. Exactly. But you know what? The thing that, that bothers me a lot is the fact that in 1942, six of eight German saboteurs who were caught dry foot on U.S. soil. Uh, were denied habeas corpus, tried by military commission, and then executed by electric chair uh, in under eight weeks. 
they were found guilty of breaking Geneva Convention. They didn't follow the law. They hadn't hurt anybody. They hadn't blown anything up. And yet they were executed for breaking the Geneva Conventions. Every mm. single one of these detainees could have been shot dead on the battlefield lawfully. And the only reason we saved them is to bring them in because they may have information that's valuable that could save many lives. And that is a quote from George W. Bush's known uh, uh, decision points where he talks about Gitmo. And that, yes, there was a handful of detainees who were waterboarded in order to obtain valuable information that saved many lives. And you will never hear that reported. Mm -hmm. And I believe that in my heart. I believe that's what happened. Uh, did some alphabet soup, secret squirrel, shadow warrior spooks do other things? Probably. But, you know, if, if you go back to the moment, I'm not saying torture is okay because, and I say this in my book, EIT waterboarding were all approved legal procedures that did not meet the definition, the internationally accepted definition of torture at the time. It was only after Barack Hussein Obama became president that he unilaterally added waterboarding to a list of torture uh, techniques. Done properly by the CIA, it is not torture, didn't meet the definition. But yet in everybody's brain, uh, that's all we did at Gitmo. Yeah. We're torturing. Yeah. And just not wasn't it, it wasn't the case. All right. I want to get into a little bit more, take a little break here on just because it's such a heavy thing for you to be processing, right? Just the 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 emotional ramifications, right? The spiritual spiritual ramifications, right? Just all that is a lot. But who's there? Right during the time you're there, because there, there, there's big names, right? There are the Khalid Sheikh Mohammeds of the world, right? There, there are these, these yeah. massive names, right? You never get to bring an Osama bin Laden there, rightfully so, right? Uh, Dev Gru, SEAL Team Six guys, welcome party. You, you know he doesn't, he doesn't get brought to a place like that. But there are some big name dudes that end up in this place. So I mean, who, to what you can tell us, right? Who was there while you were there? Yeah, KSM, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, I don't have all the names off the top of my head. I have done uh, uh, pieces with Fox News mm -hmm. uh, over the years. Um, I got interviewed by uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, Kilmeade and all those, and we put their faces up on the board and talked sure. about them. Sure. Uh, basically, our guys did a hell of a good job. They caught lots of good bad guys, they sure all, did. You know, the top level guys and yeah. uh, 23 languages were spoken among the first 258 or so. Uh, these were international soldiers of fortune, guys who flocked to Afghanistan so they could kill Americans. Um, and we got a lot of them. And, I, you know, I said before, over 740 have been released. We got about 34 left. Uh, I remember several years ago, they tried to tell us, well, about 30% are recidivists. As far as I'm concerned, if you know that 30% are recidivists, what about the ones you don't know about? Yeah. It's kind of like, you remember as a kid playing capture the flag and you had a jailer? It's kind of like the jailer on your team letting guys go. You go over and give them a beatdown. Yeah. You don't, let, yeah. you don't let the bad guys go before the game's over. Uh, you had one job. 
And in fact, the law, the law of war says that you can hold even a lawful combatant, enemy prisoner of war, bona fide, true blue, without charges or trial until the end of hostilities. So as far as I know, and I, I read the news every day, you've got Boko Haram, you've got ISIS, you've mm -hmm. got Al-Qaeda alive and well and living mm -hmm. in Somalia and Africa and Syria. Got their own Air Force bases back these days. Yeah. Like, so as far as I'm to. concerned, the global war on terror is hot. Yeah. And these guys should not have been released. The, the moment you think it's not, that's a big problem. At the moment we think it's not that the, that those plans aren't being uh, pursued, that's just not reality. And we know at least five the five guys that Obama let go are traded for that traitor. Yeah, uh, are now high level Taliban. That's um, frustrating. It's it's well, we've had a lot of conversations about it here. It's I don't even know that the word frustrating rightfully describes it. Just thinking about everything that we've been through over the last twenty years specifically. But all right, so how do you? Cause I am very interested in just the mental part of this, right? I'm a, I'm a, we've talked a lot about mental health on this show at a lot of different levels with a lot of different people. My friend, Chris O'Toole, who was part of digging up mass graves in Iraq, like the, mm -hmm. the mental anguish that that warrior went through on behalf of our nation, the things he was asked to do and see, I mean, brutal. How yeah, do you your sanity and grace through? A well, lot of part of it is the book. You know, I wrote it. It was cathartic to write it. Ten years after I was there, I wrote yeah. the book. So it built up for a very long time. Took some time, right? It took Lippold time on Front Burner, which is his yeah. book about the coal attack. He said, I, just, I wasn't ready yet to do it. So, you know, they say time heals all wounds. I don't know if they heal them, but they bring them up so you can deal with them better. Yeah, that's a great way And to so say. my conversation with people like yourself and others through Twitter and other uh, social media platforms. I'll say, uh, I would say rally point, but rally point doesn't let me talk about my book. Right. You can, as long you know. as you want here. <laughs> uh, but these conversations help me heal. Um, and I would encourage any uh, veteran, uh, combat veteran to write about their experience. Even if you're not going to publish it, just write it, get it out or use another medium like art. Uh, I hear is, is very cathartic and, you know, don't keep it in. You have to get it out. If you keep it in, bad things can happen. Uh, friends are out there. There are people out yeah. there who will listen to you and help you. Um, there are too, so many out there, but you have to engage. You know, you have to get out of your, your, your brain. Um, I credit my wife uh, with saving my life. Mm. Uh she is a tremendous warrior. She raised three boys. I was gone for two and a half years out of the first five years after 9-11 on deployments. And I, I just can't. She's my personal hero. Uh, we have five kids now. Uh, and she does a great job. Uh, so, you know, I'm lucky to have that person in my life. If, you know, reach out to, to family members, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents, uh, you know, just don't stay inside, bring it out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that. And listen, we're honored to be able to do it and have the conversation. The name of that book is saving grace at Guantanamo Bay, a memoir of a citizen warrior guys highly recommend a uh, few things. One, go grab the book. 
and Montgomery, I saw ju- tweeted just this morning, but you can just go find him on Twitter, Montgomery Granger. And uh, you can see places where you can buy it. Very interested in checking out that, that, uh, that 10 minute sort of mini documentary story as well. I think that'd be a fascinating yep. piece. It's very well done. It was and, done and, for free, by me. which is but, really but, incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, part of what we're trying to do, I think here is what we've been doing for the last, you know, year and a half um, is just continue to lean back in onto some stories that we've heard about that maybe we're a bit removed from, from time to mm-hmm. remember the real things that happened. Right. And, and really to focus in on the sacrifice and that service component that a lot of people were thrust into doing, um, yeah. you know, and that's, that's, that's our goal here is to your point. Is to, and, and look, if it gives you a little bit of respite today for having oh, talked sure. through it, then yeah, this and is we're great. honored. We're honored to be a part of it. Right, before very, we go, you got to tell me you, you, uh, we talked about this before and guys, again, go check that book out. Uh, you, I was following you on Twitter before, then you were gone for a while. Then you're back. Then sort of people are like, Hey, if you could reinstate, I saw somebody, I can't remember who it was. If you could reinstate one, you know, a person on Twitter, who would it be? And somebody tag you. And I was like, yeah, where did he go? Uh, and so you got caught up in uh, nonsense, whatever you want to call it. Just all of this, just wildness of sort of social media pandemic timeframe. Uh, and look, if this makes you uncomfortable, fine. Uh, cause I want you no, guys to good. hear what happened. No, not you. I'm saying uh, the <laughs> listener, if this makes you uncomfortable, what he's going to tell you why I got kicked off. And uh, I'm saying fine, because we want to lean into it. What the heck happened? Like what, what did you do? That was so horrendous. That got you booted from a free, well, so- I, I have a free, health free educator platform. <laughs> yeah. I have a health educator, health administrator on the civilian side and right, your credentials are bona fide. You told us before, right. Right? like, uh, you know what you're talking you know, medical about. service officer and, and combat medic. I knew you know, masks don't work for viruses. So, uh, you know, that was my, my bone to pick on Twitter and I got my hand slapped a few times, but I got suspended permanently because I challenged uh, New York governor, Kathy Hochul and a mandate she had for winter sport uh, athletes and scholastic sports. So I have two high school kids, a boy and a girl who both run indoor track and in the winter of 2021, uh, she put out the mandate and I blew her up on it and included an article from uh, another state where a female athlete wearing a mask uh, collapsed uh, is extremely dangerous, uh, you know, to have ox- blood oxygen deprivation. So I got suspended permanently. I did uh, try three times to argue my way out of it and three times they shot me down. And then an interesting thing happened. Uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter. Uh, I did not, I was not shy about asking to be put back on and, um, eventually it was completely restored. I had gotten up to 92,000 followers. I got it back with 82,000, but still with my blue seal. Pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, things worked out and I'm back, baby. It's, it's wild, right? Because I mean, look, even if I'm willing to cede some ground and say, listen, if I'm going to the hospital and I'm visiting a sick patient and I'm wearing a mask to keep some virus yeah. things, I, I, okay. Or even, even, I mean, to be honest with you, even at the beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew what the hell was going on. Right. Sure. Okay. Right, let me give you, let me see a little, I'll even cede you a little ground there. The problem is you give an inch, they take a mile, but whatever. Even if I cede some ground there on the mask thing to, to question the efficacy and to not endanger the health of the youth who are participating in a sport like track and freaking field, where if you're going to be breathing heavily, this is a sport where you're doing it. It's all about accident, uh, right? you know. So oxygen, first, so then, so the then, muscles. by the way, like then don't even <laughs> let them do it. Then, 
Like I'm almost to the point where I'm like, you're going to make them run in a mask. Like that's more dangerous. I would think, and you're a medical professional. I'm not, I would think that's more dangerous than I'm spreading stuff out in the air. Oh, yeah. Mask. Cause we all have something called an immune system. Right. So, but, and, and so the, even all that aside, right. I'm trying to come to the middle, even all that aside, <laughs> just because you question it and in doing yeah. so, post an article that points to a legit thing that happened. Mm-hmm. The machine just was like, no, we can't let them. That's the part where I'm hoping folks can look around and be like, that's fucked up. <laughs> Cause it is, it's crazy. It, is. it absolutely is. You Sorry know, for the I mean, F bomb. My mom listens to this podcast. That's mom, all right. Sure. You know, and the masks were designed to prevent contamination, bacterial can- contamination, of the surgical field in an operating room. And great, if you touch great, it, it's contaminated. Yeah. Not by, you can't protect against the virus. <laughs> and if the surgeon with his hands full sneezes or coughs, they have to leave immediately and come back. Yeah. And so again, like all that just gets thrown out the window. Yeah. All that gets thrown out the window to make a point. Uh, it's just, yeah. and again, I go back to a guy like you who has been thrust into seeing and dealing with real, I mean, life or death kind of stuff in those detention centers. And then just to sort of be cast aside, it just, it drives me a little nuts. We survived on gallows humor. Uh, I didn't buy into it too much, but there were people around me who were really into gallows humor. There was a What does that mean? Educate me up a little bit. I don't know what that is. So gallows humor. So there there was a website out there uh, called stickdeath.com. And I think it's, it's off, but if you Google it and click on uh, images, you'll see what I'm talking about. It was about um, killing the detainees Mm. and it was cartoon stick figures. Uh, And they played system of a down. So whenever I hear system of a down, that's a trigger for me. Mm. You know, uh, there are lots of triggers out there that happen all the time, but that's one way we dealt with that. Um, you know, I also try to think of the good things like uh, this female uh, uh, physical therapist, Navy physical therapist who had to deal with the detainees out of shackles and how brave she was because the MP with the club stood behind her. And I said, why do you stand behind her? Not between. He says, when, when, she, when he goes for him, I'll have my hands free and he'll be done. Um, but she did that every single day. And these are murderers. These are killers. These are people who slit your throat as soon as look at you. Uh, so I think of heroes like that, and they were all over Gitmo. People who just went in and did their job day in, day out, in a very dangerous situation, and put up with a lot of nonsense from these guys. You know, the Gitmo cocktails, splashing feces and urine on you. Um, and then have to go back and do that every day. Uh, so to me, there are a lot of heroes at Gitmo, and that's why the the um, the short film is named Heroes of Gitmo. Yep. That book, one more time, is called Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay, a memoir of a citizen warrior. Uh, Montgomery Granger is his name. Tell us where folks can find it, find you, right? And, yeah, uh, the and book, sort of be a part of this conversation with you. Yeah, I actually have Gitmo Burst. That's Gitmo Burst is my Etsy store that I can get you a signed copy inscribed, anything you want. Um, the soft cover is available on Amazon and anybody that sells books. 
And also there's a Kindle electronic version available uh, through Amazon. And, um, you know, thank you very much. And if you can't afford it, uh, money's tight, ask your local library to get a copy of Saving Grace at Guantanamo Bay. You've already paid for it. What a good idea. Rare, I've, I've not heard that advice from other authors before. Well, you know, all veteran authors need to do that and put that yeah. out there. So get people to order the book through their library. That sure. way it gets shared uh, most. And if you order it, if you're the one, you get to read it first. Nice. There you go. You get the first, first crack at it. <laughs> It's great. I've really enjoyed this. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for what you did on behalf of our country, what we asked you to do. Right. And, uh, and for taking time to share the story. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brian. God bless Anytime. you. You too. He's Montgomery Granger. I'm Brian Jodis. That's been this episode of pick up the six podcast.